I'm sure we have all heard the phrase lifestyle evangelism, which in essence means that we witness for the Lord through our lives, lives of holiness, lives of obedience, lives of dedicated service to the Lord Jesus Christ. The concept of lifestyle evangelism is sometimes opposed by those who maintain an aggressive, personal, evangelistic posture because I think they misunderstand what is involved. They perhaps think that it means that people who engage in lifestyle evangelism never speak the gospel. And, of course, we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that the gospel must be proclaimed if men and women are going to be saved. But, properly understood, lifestyle evangelism does not replace witnessing. It's not an either-or situation. It's not either lifestyle evangelism or verbal evangelism, but it is both and. Both a life that backs up what we say, as well as words to tell people what Christ has done for our souls. And lifestyle evangelism does place emphasis upon our lives as a very important part of our witness before the world. It is a recognition that the life we live is a foundation from which we can more effectively evangelize, that our lives give us an opening and a credibility in witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And conversely, it recognizes that a careless lifestyle is a great barrier to the gospel. Lifestyle evangelism is not new. That is exactly what Peter is talking about in our text before us in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. When he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Lifestyle evangelism, exactly what the Apostle Peter commends. And so we come to this text today in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And as we do, we are moving into the next major section of Peter's first epistle. All commentators that I consulted agree that this introduces a new section. No two commentators that I consulted agree as to when this particular section concludes, but they all agree as to where it begins, right here in verse 11 and continues on, and in many ways serves as a prologue, an introduction for the next section of Peter's epistle, perhaps even a prologue for the remainder of Peter's epistle. But Peter is here urging upon Christians lifestyle evangelism. And we need, therefore, to examine very carefully what he says. And here we find three things. First of all, the believer's position. Secondly, the believer's warfare. And third, the believer's testimony. And we begin by noticing the believer's position. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims. There are actually, I think, three things that Peter tells us here about the Christian's position. He tells Christians that, number one, they are secure in the love of God, and number two, they are supported by the love of the brethren, but number three, that they are outside the mainstream of this world. And I think we need to understand the first two, and if we're going to be fortified for the third one. Believers, first of all, need to understand that we are secure in the love of God. And Peter introduces this section by the term, Beloved. That's the first time that Peter uses this phrase. And he uses it only twice in the entire epistle. The next time is found in chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But here, beloved, 
I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And you can't see this in the English, but the Greek construction of this word translated beloved suggests divine activity as well as human affection. In other words, this word beloved, as Peter uses it, not only communicates his love for the brethren, but it also communicates God's love for the brethren. Now, we didn't need to be told that by this word beloved. In many ways, all of Peter's epistle up until this time has been an outpouring and an assurance of God's love for his people. God loves his people with an everlasting love. That special love of God was reinforced in the previous, immediately previous two verses. But you, said Peter, speaking to Christians, but you are what? A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How could you draw any other conclusion but that you are loved with a special love of God, even though the word love isn't found in those verses? It's obvious that God has a very special love which he has set upon his children. And so when Peter now says, Beloved, he wants you to understand that word both from his own heart, but also from the context of what he's told us about God and his salvation and his love set upon his people. And so we are secure in the love of God. And therefore, Peter wants us to know our gracious privileges as those who are beloved by God. And we need to know that in order to keep focused in a hostile world because we do live in a hostile world. And there is warfare going on. And if we're going to be prepared to face that hostility, we have got to understand God's love. We've got to be secure in God's love. We have got to keep ourselves in the love of God. We have got to stay in close fellowship with the Lord so that we can be constantly reassured of His love. That's the only way that we're going to be able to withstand in the evil day. And so the believer, number one, is secure in the love of God. But the believer, number two, is supported by the love of the brethren. Beloved, said Peter, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. And this is very much the expression of Peter's love for them. This is Peter's sentiment. These are Peter's words. Peter, who is an apostle, with all of the authority that apostles have, Peter, who has instructions for them, he has things to tell them to do, divine instructions, but Peter does not deliver those instructions mechanically or with a degree of anger, not at all. Peter delivers these instructions with the greatest measure of personal affection, his own personal love for these who are loved by the Father. Peter is a fellow believer who loves them personally. This is not only indicated by the word beloved, but it's also reinforced by Peter's appeal when he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, I beseech you, says one translation. It probably should be stronger than simply to ask or urge. The idea is I urgently appeal to you, but please note, Peter does not say I command you. He could. He certainly could. He has every right to do so. He has all authority to do so. It would not be inappropriate in any way for Peter to say, Now, I command you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. But I see in the choice of Peter's words an extension of this affection, this love. It is Peter's personal love for them. And so he says, I, I beg of you, I strongly urge you, not as an apostle to Christians, but as one fellow believer to another. 
as one fellow believer who is also struggling with these fleshly lusts which war against the soul, as a fellow believer who is also feeling the hostility of the world toward himself. I understand where you are. I know what you're going through. And as one believer to another, I tenderly but urgently appeal to you. Abstain from fleshly lusts. This is Peter's first distinctly personal appeal. Now, he's made appeals to them before. He's had instructions and suggestions and imperatives. They've come up, as we have seen in the previous section. But now, his first distinctly personal appeal with that, with that personal pronoun, I, I urge you, I beg you, I, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, personally urge you, personally, urgently urge you to do this because it is so vitally important. I think this also reminds us that true holiness cannot be secured by force. It must be procured by an awakened desire. It must be secured by appealing to what Christians know and who Christians are and the work of grace that God has already done within our souls and reminding us of that work and calling upon us to act upon that which we know and that which we have experienced as the work of God's grace in our heart to call us from that to rise to meet the requirements of God, not because they are commanded, though they are, but because we have that God-given desire. It's appropriate to command believers. There's nothing wrong with that. It's appropriate to command unbelievers. There's nothing wrong with that. And both believers and unbelievers are regularly commanded in the Word of God. The difference is that unbelievers, though commanded, have no innate ability to respond to that command. And the commands that are given to them are to show them their inability that they might cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ, that they might recognize that they have no ability to do what God requires and therefore seek mercy in Christ. Believers are commanded to do what, by the grace of God, we have been enabled to do. Having been regenerated by the Spirit of God, even now indwelt by the Spirit of God, having the means of grace, the Word of God, the throne of grace in prayer, we have everything necessary to do whatever God commands, but just as much we have everything necessary to do what Peter appeals. And isn't it good? when we recognize the rightness of an appeal and when there is within our hearts a corresponding response. We do this not because we feel that we must. We do this because we very much desire. Do you have that desire this morning, beloved? A desire to please the Lord, to serve Him, to hear His will done when you stand before Him someday. Do you have that desire within your heart? That's the evidence of conversion. And the absence of that is the evidence of an unconverted soul. Beloved, I beg of you. And so, secure in the love of God and supported by the love of the brethren... And the love of the brethren is a Christian characteristic. It's not just Peter who loves the brethren, but all the brethren love the brethren, right? The Bible tells us that a number of times. Take this statement, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. We can't not love the brethren if we are the true children of God. That's another evidence that we have been born again. If we love the brethren, it comes by the work of God's Spirit in our souls. We have been transformed by the work of God. If we don't love the brethren, no matter what we profess, we evidently don't know the Lord because everyone who loves the Lord loves 
God's children, and he who does not love his brother, says John, abides in death. And so it's not only Peter who loves the brethren, but it's all God's children who love one another. There's a great love within the body of Christ, and we need that. Again, as we face a hostile world, we need to be secure in the love, not only of God, but the love of God's people for us and our love for one another. We need to help each other. We need to support each other. We need to to pick each other up when we stumble. We need to pray for one another. We need to admonish one another. We need to interact with one another in love because this is a trying world in which we live. And if we're going to live consistently as godly children in a hostile world, we must be secure in the love of God and we must be supported by the love of the brethren. Because the believer's position, thirdly, is outside the mainstream of this world. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. We sang John Bunyan's pilgrim song a moment ago. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. These two words are virtually synonyms, very close synonyms in the original language. We are sojourners, a word that means an alien, an outsider, a foreigner. That's who we are in relationship to this world. We are pilgrims, that is, strangers, exiles. Peter already told us that as he opened his epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's not necessarily talking to people who have been physically dispersed, though in some cases that may be very true and probably was true of many of them. But even if he's talking to people who grew up in these towns that he names, he's still talking to pilgrims if they are the children of God. We're all pilgrims. We're all exiles, strangers, sojourners, and pilgrims. Two words for double emphasis. Please understand how important this is to recognize this position as strangers and sojourners in this world. We belong to another world. We belong to a superior kingdom. We no longer belong to this world that we still live in. And we live in a different citizenship, a different kingdom. And it's important, therefore, that we live like citizens of heaven and not like citizens of the earth. That's what Peter is telling us. And that's difficult. That's difficult for a lot of reasons, but it's especially difficult because though we are now strangers and pilgrims, we used to be inhabitants of this world. We are strangers and pilgrims, but it's not like we came from heaven to earth and said, my, what a strange place this is. It is that we were born into this world. We grew up in this world and lived, I don't know how many years in this world, depending on your particular personal testimony. And then God reached down and changed us and made us citizens of another world. But you see, we still, we we, we feel all too comfortable in this world because it is the world that we were born into and came from and we have a lot of affinity with. And yet we must not forget that we are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are exiles here in this world. We are not what we used to be. Grace has claimed us. Grace has changed us. Grace has removed us from the mainstream of humanity. We're in the world, but not of the world, is the way Christ put it in John chapter 17. We probably all sung at one time or another, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's the truth. This world is not my home. And yet sometimes we forget that. This world is not my home. But sometimes this world seems more like home to us than our real home. We have never been to heaven. We only know what the Bible tells us about it. The place that is our real home, 
We have never been to. The place that is no longer our home is what we were born into. No longer we struggle with this. But don't forget who you are in Christ. Beloved of the Father, loved by the brethren, but outcasts in this world, strangers to the very world in which you live, no longer part of this world system, no longer a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, no longer under the dominion of sin, no longer jerked around by the God of this world, Satan. We have been rescued out of all of that. We are the sons of God, His chosen people, His special people. That's who we are. Let's remember our position. And we'll need to because we come secondly to the believer's warfare. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. (coughs) If we don't get a handle around our position and live in the light of it, we're going to have difficulty with this warfare. And there are actually two exhortations by Peter in regard to this warfare. (coughs) The first one negative and the second one positive. The first one in verse 11 and the second one in verse 12. The first one is something that we must not do and the second one is something that we must do. And we're dealing, first of all, with the one in verse 11, the believer's warfare. As pilgrims, as sojourners, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And Peter's telling us we've got an enemy, and we're going to have to battle that enemy. And he tells us about the enemy's location, and he tells us about the enemy's determination, and he tells us about the enemy's defeat. And where is this enemy that wars against our soul? Well, it is within us. It is fleshly Lusts which war against the soul. Passions of the flesh which war against the soul. Sinful desires characteristic of the fallen Adam. Of our fallen mind which must be renewed by the grace of God. Of our bodily passions which must be restrained by the work of God. And it's not appropriate that citizens of heaven should live like citizens of the earth. And that's a good test when you're considering whether something is appropriate for a Christian or not. A lot of ways to evaluate that, but one way is to evaluate this. Would this be a good thing for you to do in heaven? Would this be something that you'd be happy to be doing around the throne of God with the saints of God in a place where there is no sin and defilement? Is this a good activity for heaven? If it's not, then it's probably not a good activity for earth either, not for a child of God. Peter has in mind all kinds of fleshly lusts which war against the soul, sexual sins to be sure are very much in view. But all kinds of other appetites are also part of these these Adamic desires. Appetites for drugs and alcohol and for things for the eye to see that it ought not to see. All kinds of appetites. And envy and desire for more and more material things. And the sins of the tongue, the, the anger and the bitterness and the backbiting and the slander of the tongue. And all of the things that characterize man and his fallen condition but are unbecoming a child of God. These are the fleshly lusts which war against our soul. Whose dominion was broken when we were joined to Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you when you are in Christ. Sin, which once was your master, you lived in the kingdom of darkness, and sin therefore reigned over you. And you did obey, because though there might be specific instances where you might resist this or that, your heart 
your condition, your, your inclination, everything about you was bent toward following the desires of sin and Satan who has dominion over you. There was something within you that answered very much to what Satan desired, and there was really nothing within you that longed for righteousness and Christ and godliness. But as we know, Adamic desires, though, the power of them is broken when we come to Christ, who breaks the power of canceled sin, who sets the sinner free, sets the prisoner free. Nevertheless, as long as we walk in this world, until we have been released from this world and our souls are in the presence of God in heaven, until that day comes, we are still wrestling with the remains of those Adamic fleshly desires which still have an ability to entice, to attract They can never master us again as once they did, but oh, they can still wage warfare against our soul. They can and they do. They do. That's what Peter is telling us. They do. And as long as we are upon the earth, we have an enemy and that enemy is within us. Like Pogo of old said, we have met the enemy and he is us. It's not so much that the devil made me do it. It's that I have within me sinful desires that have not yet been eradicated. And they rise up and respond to temptation. It's the enemy within that I yielded to. The enemy within didn't make me do it. But the enemy within made it easier for me to do it than it should have been. I have an enemy within And we need to understand the strength of the enemy's determination. These lusts war against our soul. This speaks of relentless, active hostility. The picture is that of guerrilla warfare, attacking from every side where we least expect it. And it is in the present tense, which means that it's going on continually. We are continually being attacked by fleshly lusts. They never call a truce upon our soul. There never is a respite from this battle, this warfare. Christians sometimes mistakenly think that if they live godly in Christ Jesus, they'll finally get to the place where sinful temptations will no longer allure. They'll no longer tempt. They will no longer assault us. But that is not what the Bible teaches us. Far from it. Just the opposite. The Bible teaches us that these fleshly lusts continuously war against our soul as long as you live. You'll never get to the place where you won't have fleshly temptations. That's not just the young person's problem. That's the middle-aged person's problem. That's not just the middle-aged person's problem. That's the old person's problem. That's not just the young Christian's problem. That's the old Christian's problem. Those who have been saved 60 and 70 and, yes, 80 years and more still testify that they still struggle with fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Why should we be surprised? That's exactly what the Bible tells us. And here it is in our text. In 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, these fleshly lusts that war against the soul, that war against our mind, so that we don't think Christ's thoughts as we should. We need to have the mind of Christ in us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We, We need to have our minds renewed, and they can be and are being renewed by the Word of God. But many times... Our minds, which were so perverted before we were saved, still resort to that ungodly thinking. When these fleshly lusts rise up and make a hit, when they find a chink in our armor, then they will attack us first by causing us to think thoughts that are wrong. They're contrary to truth. We begin to justify sin. We begin to excuse sin. We begin to minimize sin so that we can toy with sin and play with sin and do not realize that these fleshly lusts are attacking our mind successfully when that's going on. 
They attack our spiritual nature. That soul of Christians, which has been made new by the work of God's Spirit, but that's what's being attacked by fleshly lust within us. And they will weaken our will so that we do not have the strength of desire to please the Lord that we once had and should have. They will pervert our desires so that we don't have the strong desires after God and holiness that once we had and should still have. They will cloud our understanding so that our clear understanding of God's word is not as strong and sharp as once it was. And this is the way that these fleshly lusts go to work within our soul. Sometimes we think that as long as we are not actively and overtly breaking the commandments of God, that whatever else is going on in our thought life is relatively harmless, that we can entertain some of these things and toy with them and play with them without any great danger, but that is a failure to believe what Peter tells us right here. No, folks, this is a battle, and fleshly lusts are looking for every opportunity to gain an advantage, and if you are not on guard, you are going to stumble and fall rather badly. You're facing a determined enemy who lives within And he's more determined than we are many times. So how is this enemy defeated? Abstain. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's pretty simple. Abstain. Stay away from. Literally, be holding yourself off from. Be holding yourself off from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Also in the present tense, like the fleshly lust which war against our soul, present tense, continual warfare, so the abstaining is present tense, continual battle, continually resisting, continually avoiding. We can't let our guard down with impunity. It's a daily battle. We cannot yield entrance for a moment without causing damage. We cannot yield entrance for a moment without causing damage to our souls. We cannot treat with mild affection what the Bible calls sin without damage to our souls. The battle is within. The battle is in the mind. The battle is largely unseen by others, though how we do with this battle is eventually going to be seen in our life. The battle is primarily in our thought life, and that's why self-discipline is so very much required. We have got to determine to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We either will or won't. We either do or don't. We either obey or disobey. We either rise to this appeal or we foolishly ignore the wisdom of Peter in this appeal. We've got to abstain. We've got to resist. We've got to reject. We've got to put out of sight, out of mind. And to the extent that we do, we will triumph. We will defeat for the moment the enemy within. Though he'll be back. He'll be back tomorrow. It's another day. But to the extent that we reject these fleshly lusts, we will triumph. But to the extent that we relax our guard, relax our vigilance, relax our fight, relax our determination to keep these things out of our life, out of our mind, to that extent we will fall and fall badly And we will incur damage to our soul, our soul with the life of God within, our soul that communes with God, our soul that prays to God, our soul that receives the word of God. We're going to receive damage to our soul. 
and to all that our soul is in relationship to God, all of that's going to be damaged when we fail to abstain. Which brings us now, number three, to the believer's testimony in verse 12. And this is what is seen by others. The battle is unseen in verse 11, but here's what is seen by others. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And now Peter reminds us again of the importance of our conduct. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Having your conduct excellent. Having your conduct beautiful, winsome, noble, praiseworthy are all synonyms of this word. Your conduct that is praiseworthy. Praised by who? You say, well, praised by God. Yes, but Peter also has somebody else in mind here. Praised by unbelievers in the world. Conduct that is so excellent, so beautiful, so noble that it even earns the praise of unbelievers in the world. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? Peter's talking about our lifestyle, our daily patterns of life among, as he calls it, the the Gentiles. Obviously a word that Peter uses to mean unbelievers. Gentiles. Not racially Jews and Gentiles, but Gentiles, the unbelievers. He's writing to people who are, at least in part, and probably largely Gentiles or were, but not in this sense, in this spiritual sense. You're no longer Gentiles. You're the people of God, but the unconverted people are Gentiles. You say, how do you know that Peter was writing to people who were formerly Gentiles? Well, look at 1 Peter 4.3, where Peter says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now that's a list of sins that generally would be ascribed to to Gentiles, to pagans in the New Testament. And particularly that last one, abominable idolatries, would probably never be assigned to a Jew in this first century. He's obviously talking about pagan, heathen Gentiles who bow down to false gods and who live this kind of lifestyle. And these are the kind of things that need to be put out of the life of God. And he says, uh, the life of the child of God, and he says, you are to live a life that is beautiful before the Gentiles, before people who live like this. In other words, we not only consider our life in the light of God's word, and that's first and foremost, we not only consider our life between us and God and how we please the Lord, but we also have to consider our life and its conduct against the expectations of the society in which we live. And admittedly, the society in which we live is all mixed up. They don't understand. There are a lot of things that they've got wrong. They have, they have distorted notions of godliness. And we can't, we can't address all of those, but we need to take them into account even as we live before them. And there are some things, therefore, that are going to change depending on exactly where we live. But Peter is saying we've got to watch our conduct, not only before God, but also before men. We need to evaluate our Christian liberties in the light of our testimony before the world. Are there things that are liberties for a child of God that that are not sins? Of course there are some things that some people think are sins are really not sins in the careful examination of the word of God. But if they are thought to be sins by the Gentiles in which we live, don't you think that the right response is to say, I'm not going to do that if that will cause them to, to fail to see God, if it will cause them to, to depreciate the gospel of Christ? 
Remember Paul, I'll eat no meat while the world stands because meat that was offered to an idol could be a real stumbling block to somebody who worshipped that idol. Nothing wrong with the meat and he could eat it in private just fine at home and enjoy every bite. Not a sin. But be careful what you do because others are watching I think about how Christians have to live sometimes in a Muslim society. And again, it would depend upon the society, but probably if Christians were living in a Muslim society, you ladies would decide that the best course of action would be to put on a head covering when you go out in public because right or wrong, and we know it's wrong, but probably nearly everybody in that society is going to identify you as a loose, immoral woman if you don't cover your head. Got no basis in the word of God, no basis in in true righteousness, true godliness. Well, it doesn't matter. I know before God that I'm not that kind of woman. And the only thing that matters is how I please the Lord. No, that's not the only thing that matters. It also matters what kind of testimony you have before the world. And we're supposed to live in such a way that even the world around us says, that's right, that's noble, that's godly, that's excellent according to their understanding, as weak and often distorted as it may be. I think this is also why it's good for Christians to get involved in in activities that the world recognizes as good, even when sometimes we have our questions about it. Programs, for example, to feed the hungry. We know how a lot of that is is probably encouraging Um, sloth and dependence upon others, upon government in in perhaps an unhealthy way. But we know that the society in which we live puts great value on that. That's a good deed. That's That's a righteous act. Now, we can rail against it and say, you people are crazy and, uh, I'm not gonna have any part in that. Or we can say, you know, God tells us to have a testimony before the Gentiles who are watching us, and if I know this is something that they will consider to be beautiful and noble and excellent for the sake of a testimony for Christ, I think I'll do exactly that. And so we must live lives of consistent biblical godliness and self sacrificing sensitivity. We are called upon to live lives of consistent biblical godliness as we understand God's word, but also, in addition to that, self-sacrificing sensitivity to the world around us. And even in the face of the inevitable slander which comes our way, and this is hard to take, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when, it's coming, folks. It's just a matter of when is it going to come and how much of it's going to come, but it's not a matter of if it's going to come. False reports. Critical reports. Derogatory reports. Even to the extent this word could include accusations of criminal behavior, even when they accuse Christians of doing things that are criminal. And we know they're not. They did that in the early centuries. Have you ever read your history? Did you ever read how Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome, said that they're the ones who burned Rome down when he did it? Criminal activity. You should read some of the slanders against those early Christians. They were accused of of being cannibals. Why? Because of their partaking of the Lord's table. They were accused, accused of living incestuous lives. Why? Because they called everybody their sister and brother and expressed their love to everybody in the family of God. You see, awful, blasphemous, slanderous distortions 
with no basis in fact. And why do they do that? Because we are different. The world tends to criticize anyone that is different from them. Because we do not join their sin. Because our lives convict them of their sins. Because we are identified with Christ and they're resisting Christ. And so they're resisting those who they identify with Christ. Why would we think this strange? Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. How do we refute the slander, the lies, the derogatory remarks, the false accusations of the unbelievers around us? How do we refute their lies? Do we rise up and set the record straight with great indignation? Or do we do what Peter tells us to do, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak of you as evildoers... They may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. How do we refute them? By just continually living humble lives of godliness and waiting for God to vindicate us in His time. Recognizing the potential of conversion. That they may by your good works glorify God in the day of visitation. Consistent goodness in the lives of God's children causes God to be glorified by unbelievers at some point. Again, is that strange? What did Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I don't think Peter had to study commentaries to come up with this thought, did he? He heard it from the lips of his Lord. They will glorify God at some future day. Glorify God. And what does that mean? Well, the word means to praise, to honor. It even means to worship God. The Greek word is used 61 times in the New Testament Always a voluntary action, never a forced action, which I think will help us to interpret that last phrase, the day of visitation. And what is this day of visitation? They're going to glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, there is debate about that. Sometimes this word is used in the Bible of a day of judgment. Isaiah 10.3, what will you do in the day of judgment and in the desolation which will come from afar. Sometimes it's used of a day of God's blessing and grace, as, for example, in Luke 19.44, the only other time it's used in the Greek Testament, where Jesus is talking about the destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem, and he says, And level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another, because, listen to this, because you did not know the time of your visitation because you did not recognize the grace of God and the coming of Jesus Christ, you did not recognize the overture of God's love to you and blessing to you when Jesus Christ came in the day of visitation. Christ came in the day of visitation. And some, of course, did did receive Him, but many did not. And so this is a day when God visits men, either for blessing or for judgment, Some think this speaks of the day of their conversion. I tend to think so. Others think it speaks of the day of men's condemnation when they are hauled before the judgment bar of God and when they are forced to glorify the Lord, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Forced testimony from those whose hearts are still in rebellion against God. But it's interesting that in Revelation 16:9 we read, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. 
That idea of glorifying God, giving him glory, I say, apparently is used only of voluntary praise and worship and adoration. It could speak of the day of judgment in this sense, that for those who in the day of judgment are found to have been saved by the testimony of God's people, it becomes a day of vindication when they will say, yes, I opposed you, but your life was used by God to bring me to humble surrender to Christ. And I have now become a worshiper of Christ. And I now testify that your good life was what God used to bring me to salvation. This, of course, assumes a knowledge of the gospel. Nobody's going to come to glorify God who does not come to understand the gospel in Jesus Christ. It assumes a knowledge of the gospel. It assumes that these who glorify God do so because they have come to recognize their sinful condition before God and have realized that Jesus Christ is God's own appointed remedy and that he lived the perfect life that I did not live and that he died the death of judgment that I deserved to die and that he rose again from the dead and that those who renounce all self-righteousness and self-merit and self-effort and cling only to Jesus Christ as the way of salvation are saved by the gracious power of God and now become followers of the Lamb and worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ and give Him glory. How about you, dear friend? Have you a heart that gives God glory? Do you have a heart that recognizes your need of Christ and has cast yourself completely and fully and unreservedly upon Him? But this whole text magnifies the value of a godly lifestyle. Peter tells us God uses the godly lives of his children to call sinners to Christ. God uses the godly lives of his children to call sinners to Christ. And therefore, we need to double our efforts to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul and to live godly lives before a watching world. Shall we pray? Forgive us, O Lord, for our carelessness. Forgive us, O Lord, for our inconsistent lives that have harmed the testimony of Christ to others. Forgive us, O Lord, for thinking only of ourselves and entertaining those secret delights that eventually break out in the open and become such a detriment to the testimony of Christ and to the manifestation of your grace. Thank you, Lord God, that you don't save us because we're good and that you don't keep us saved because we're good. We thank you, O Lord, that salvation is not because of who we are and what we've done, but it's because of who you are, great and gracious God, and what you have done in showing mercy upon undeserving sinners. O Lord, we could never earn our salvation. We could never deserve the salvation that we have received. But, O Lord God, we want to glorify you. Stir up within us a greater desire to honor you, and to have our lives used to bring others to a knowledge of the Savior as we ask it in his name.